Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This podcast is being released shortly after the 2018 midterm elections. Bruce House Connect, a focus on the family, provides some analysis of the results. Also, Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance joined me recently to talk about a biblical definition of justice, pointing out how he sees those concepts contrast with some popular ideas about the issue. Then it's author and speaker Jonathan McKee bringing some insight on the topic of bullying and bringing encouragement for parents in dealing with this activity, person to person and through technology. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's David Curry of Open Doors USA with a report on the Pakistani Christian woman who was facing a death sentence for blasphemy until she was released by the Supreme Court of Pakistan, a release that has resulted in protests in the country. Then he is a familiar actor who has an ambition to direct films that present a faith-based message. Daniel Roebuck shares about a movie he directs and acts in that deals with matters of life, death, hope, and grace. Finally, bookending the election coverage in this edition of The Intersection, it's Mark Meckler of Citizens for Self-Governance sharing his observations. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Bruce House Connect is judicial analyst for Focus on the Family, and the day after the midterm elections, he provided some analysis and commentary about the results, including the judicial implications of an increase in GOP Senate seats and the potential in a Congress that has different parties leading each chamber. From that conversation, this is Bruce House Connect. We see it uh, as as a continuation on the judges' side of uh, uh, the Senate being able to confirm good judges. Uh, we, we won't see any uh, squishy uh, Republican votes threatening uh, good judges like we sort of did uh, with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings recently. Uh, so that that's a very important development. With the Democrats coming out ahead in the in the House, that probably uh, does not bode well for getting any kind of legislation passed that social conservatives want to see, whether it's pro-life or defunding Planned Parenthood, uh, religious freedom, you name it. The, there's probably going to be a stalemate uh, with any kind of agenda that social conservatives would be hoping for. You look at the makeup, the philosophical makeup of the federal judiciary, how it's changed already, not just because you've got two constitutionalist judges that have been appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court in Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, but you also have a number of other federal appeals court judges and district judges that have been placed on the federal judiciary. So the the makeup of the federal judiciary already just in the last two years, because the responsibility to appoint those judges falls on the president with confirmation by the Senate. So moving forward with the Senate in Republican hands, you could see more of the same with respect to the federal judiciary. Yeah, you know, I don't think people understand how quickly the judiciary turns over with retirements and resign resignations and things like that. There are uh, approximately 850 federal judges in the federal system, and the president nominates all of those uh, as as those vacancies come up. And already in the two years uh, that President Trump has been in office, he's had 84 federal judges confirmed. Um, that's amazing for uh, two years, and I've seen reports that uh, Senator McConnell, as the majority leader in the Senate, has plans to uh, bring another 60-0 candidates, nominees, before the Senate 
by the end of the year. So that's a, that's a record-breaking pace, uh, and it, it just that still leaves many vacancies to be appointed and confirmed. So uh, I think, yes, we're, we're seeing a definite impact uh, on the courts, and it doesn't take long if, for a president, especially a two-term president, to swing the, uh, the majority, so to speak, on each circuit, of, at least at the appellate court level, so that uh, judges, you know, when you have panels of three judges or when you have an en banc panel of 12 or 20 judges listening to a, an important case, when you have most of them as constitutionalists, uh, strict constructionists, um, you're going to have favorable types of decisions for those of us who revere the Constitution and don't like to see their judges make up laws from the bench. There continues to be quite a bit of analysis with respect to the Kavanaugh hearings and the effect on this election, because when you looked at the polling data, it looked like, and you, of course you hear that whole phrase of the blue wave and you know, it really looked like that the Democrats were going to do very well in taking the House and perhaps taking the Senate. The Brett Kavanaugh hearings really kind of changed the whole makeup of that, didn't they? I think so. I think uh, as people watched in some of these red states with some of these uh, uh, Democratic senators and they saw the treatment that Kavanaugh received uh, at the hands of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrats and and the Democrats in general, I think they really, I really held that against them in in those uh, four races. And apparently, uh, Tester, Senator Tester in in Montana is a similar similar case. He's a a Democratic senator in a red state, and he barely squeaked through uh, this in against a a challenger, a, a Republican challenger. And that's probably attributable also to the Kavanaugh effect. So, um, I think Americans did not look kindly on the the Senate's treatment of Kavanaugh, and that should hopefully send a message to all parties uh, in future nominees. Bruce House Connect from Focus on the Family here on the intersection. The Focus on the Family website is focusonthefamily.com, and you can go to the social issues section. Calvin Beisner is founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. In a recent conversation, he talked about matters of justice from a biblical perspective. Based on his booklet, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. From that conversation, this is Cal Beisner. Well, I think the contrast is very stark. And let's approach this the way way bank tellers are taught to know the difference between Uh, real and counterfeit uh, currency. Uh, They're taught to do it by feel, and they don't do a lot of feeling of counterfeit. They feel the real stuff, and they feel it so much that eventually their fingers get to the point where (laughs) if they touch a counterfeit bill, they know it right away, not because they've studied a lot of counterfeit, but because they've studied the real thing. So let's start with the meaning of justice in the scriptures. And my many years of study on that, uh, looking carefully at the context of every single use of every Hebrew and Greek word related to justice or righteousness or right and so on, uh, my, my study led me to the conclusion that biblical justice means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard, the just standard, that is God's moral law. So we get four criteria there. Impartiality is the first one. That is, 
all laws have to apply to everybody alike. You don't play any favorites. Nobody is exempt from the law. Nobody has special privileges. All the laws must apply exactly alike to everybody. If you have an income tax, you have the same percentage of income from, uh, that is taxed. Uh, you, don't, you don't use a progressive tax rate. Uh, if, you, if you have uh, a law saying that, that if you steal, uh, you have to pay back what you stole plus 20%, well, that has to be uh, applied to everybody, no matter how rich or how poor that person is. So uh, impartiality is the first criterion. Second criterion of justice is proportionality. That is, uh, we have a saying for it in English, the punishment must fit the crime. Uh, you don't have capital punishment for petty theft. But neither do you have a slap on the wrist for first-degree murder. The punishment must fit the crime. The reward must fit the, the performance. And so that's proportionality. The third criterion is that you're rendering what is due. It's what someone has earned. It's not, it's not uh, something contrary to what someone has earned. Uh, that's grace, or it may instead be oppression if you, if you treat someone uh, badly who has earned good treatment. Or if you treat someone well who's earned bad treatment, that's grace. So there is rendering what is due. And then finally, there's conformity to the standard of God's moral law. Where do we learn what is due? Where do we learn what is right conduct and wrong conduct? Where do we learn what are proper rewards and punishments? We learn them from God's moral law in Scripture, summarized, of course, in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. And yet there's much more of the moral law spread through Scripture that can teach us more about that. So that's real justice, rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due according to the righteous standard of God's moral law. Now, social justice, in contrast, tends to just demand that you try to equalize all the conditions of everybody in the society. No matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, no matter how, how productively they work, no matter what their behavior, somehow or other you need to equalize or at least make the, the conditions of the people in your society more equal than whatever they are at the moment. And it also tends to, uh, to, uh, to focus not on individuals, but on groups. When we read in Romans 2.6 that God renders to everyone his due, that's individuals, Right. But social justice tends to say, tends to say we, need to, we need to treat people as groups, and this is where identity politics comes mm -hmm. from. Yes, yes. And that overlooks the differences in behavior of the people in the groups. Cal Beisner here on The Intersection. Learn more at cornwallalliance.org. Continuing with this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's author and speaker Jonathan McKee. He's written the book, The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. He shared some insight into the overall topic and how parents can respond. From that conversation, this is Jonathan McKee.
I mean, like I would walk in a grocery store with my mom, and little kids would be like, "Mom, what's wrong with his teeth?" You know, and moms were like, "Don't, don't say that out loud, dear." You know, and I mean, this is just my life. I mean, every day, and it, and it got just drew so much teasing. And and one thing I talk about that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to the bullying thing is when you get teased, ridiculed every day. When when kids are knocking books off your, you know, off your desk. When you're getting smacked on the back of the neck in PE, you it it, it, it does something to you. It, it, it hardens you. It makes you skeptical of, of humanity. And there's this bitterness that happens. There's this social awkwardness that can happen because you aren't talking with people as much. You 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 kind of isolate. You tend to isolate a little more. And and so interesting thing in my life is is even when the teeth got better, middle school I still really struggled because even if somebody came and sat with me, I was skeptical. You know I I and I I was socially. Um, awkward, and it made it really rough. And so, and junior high school is is when it struggled the most. I mean, I, I had several kids that kind of got this vendetta against me, and they actually started the the Kill John Club, made T-shirts with my face with a picture of a gun scope on on my, oh my face, goodness. and and it, it was it was rough. And I just felt alone, and I felt like nobody cared. I actually told the teacher about it, and teacher even said when I said, "Oh yeah," and they made T-shirts. She goes, "No, they didn't." I mean, it's just, and the crazy thing is, so now here I am doing research on this, talking with other people about this, and I kept hearing the same thing where people said, I I couldn't tell anybody because, you know, nobody would do anything. Nobody cared. And so we as parents, as teachers, as people that care about this younger generation, um, this is something we've got to pay attention to because the reach is only only more extended now with cyberbullying. I'd like for you to address how biblical principles really affect your work and, and what you relate in this book on this topic. Yeah, no, no, great question, because, you know, as we know, there's not just bullies, there's not just the bullied, there's also bystanders, and so many of our kids might see this going on day after day. They might see that kid getting smacked around in gym class. Uh, they might, you know... Uh, get past the pictures that everybody's getting passed around at school and they might see those and they're and the thing they're you know they're torn they're like do, do i laugh do i do i do nothing or you know do i maybe stand up and do something and that is that's the struggle for the bystander and, and uh you know i devote a whole chapter in the book to to you know what we can do if our kids are bystanders. As a matter of fact, I call it the one chapter you should read with your kids and have your kids read with you and i talk about how we treat others and I bring it to Philippians chapter 2, because that's just such an amazing passage where Paul talks about I mean, such simple advice of, hey, consider others better than yourselves. And that's a, that's a foreign thing for young kids today. I mean, that's for, anybody, I hang out with middle school kids a lot. Middle school kids, you walk towards a car, first thing a middle school kid yells is, shotgun! You know, I've never heard a middle school, middle school kid yell, shotgun! for you. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I mean, we're, we're kind of self-centered young people. I mean, that's kind of the way we are, you know, and, and to talk with young people about thinking with others, show them the model of what Jesus did. Um, it's life-changing. And this is the kind of stuff where we can help our kids, you know, actually realize that they can make a difference in the life of someone else. Show them, I, I, I've put studies in the book showing the difference that one kid can make, one kid could truly save a life and resolving not to bully others, refusing to join in and, and reaching out to somebody who's hurting or alone and what that looks like. Jonathan McKee here on The Intersection. His website address is the source, the number four parents, the source for parents.com. 
Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And you can find The Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. David Curry is president and CEO of Open Doors USA. Recently, he discussed with me the plight of Aja Bibi, a Christian woman who was sentenced to death for blasphemy, then released by the Pakistani Supreme Court. He also commented on the protests occurring in the country. Here now is David Curry. Well, the blasphemy law in Pakistan, and there are other countries that have it as well, is a, is a form of vigilante justice by extremist Muslims who can, who can accuse anybody of blasphemy, uh, blasphemy against Mohammed. And in, in Asya Bibi's case, she was at a well. Uh, she's a very impoverished person, illiterate. She was at a well trying to get a drink of water, offered it to a Muslim. And that was uh, started a conversation and an exchange in which Asya Bibi made clear she was a Christian. And someone said, you have blasphemed Muhammad. So essentially, her crime was claiming Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Supreme Court last, last week, that released her. The, the law that I've read, a good chunk of the statement from the Supreme Court, the law is solid on letting her go. There are very inconsistent reports that she said anything that would be even considered offensive to Islam. And uh, there's uh, there's just no co- corroboration of the story, of the accusation. She should have never spent any time in jail. But that's the problem with blasphemy laws. That's why we need to raise raise our voices on this and get these overturned, continue to put international pressure on Pakistan Sudan, other countries, or 68 countries that have blasphemy laws on the books. Not all of them enforce them, but we need to get all of these repealed for everyone, but particularly for Christians. And I was going to ask you about the the climate where you have these blasphemy laws. It sounds like there are a number of countries that are predominantly Muslim countries that are using these laws to silence anyone that would express a different view. And these types of laws, as we've seen in the Aja Bibi case, really place quite a bit of pressure and come down on Christians, it does seem to me. Well, absolutely. It's primarily being used against Christians. There are people who died and been put to death. Unfortunately, in many cases, when somebody is even accused of blasphemy, mob violence breaks out and they lose their life before it can even go to trial. So it, it needs to be repealed, and, and I'm proud of the Supreme Court of Pakistan for standing up to this. It puts their life in danger. Her life is in danger. We're really hoping that the State Department and others can help get her out of the country as soon as possible, because there's been protests, and we expect 
um, there could be violence. We're hoping the Pakistani government will continue to protect soft targets like churches and, and areas where uh, Christians are living because extremists are going to use this as a reason to attack. David Curry, President and CEO of Open Doors USA, joining us today here on The Beating House on Faith Radio. So let's talk about what has transpired since that announcement by the Pakistani Supreme Court. Aja Bibi has been released. No word on her whereabouts. There does seem to be speculation that she is seeking to leave Pakistan and go into another country. Meanwhile, on the streets of Pakistan in various areas, you have this violence that is occurring. You have people taking to the streets. Describe what's occurring now in protest to this ruling by the Pakistani Supreme Court. Well, leading up to it and after, there's an extremist group there, Muslim extremists, who, and that's not to say all Muslims, because there are many in the country who do who do have a more moderate view of this, but unfortunately, Islam is yet to deal with extremists in their in their midst, and Sharia law is very clear that it pushes people towards this extremism. But that's a separate conversation. This this group is is pushing for protest. They want to shut down Pakistan, and they have and they have raised a ruckus. Her family right now is in the U.K. We're hoping that she can get out as well. They went there for their own safety. She's going to need to get out of Pakistan for her for her life. There are people who are trying to find every loophole in, in the law to get her back into prison, keep her there, get her executed for, for blasphemy. But there's just... It, there's just no law that would support it. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen, but we need to continue to be vigilant and pressure, and hopefully the pressure of Western governments, all of the Western governments, but including the United States, will help get her out and, and continue to put pressure on Pakistan to drop this law entirely. David Curry here on The Intersection. You can find out more about Open Doors USA by going to the website opendoorsusa.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Daniel Roebuck, director of and actor in the film Getting Grace. He discussed his faith-inspired approach to filmmaking and talked about the themes of the film, dealing with matters of life and death, hope, and grace. Here now from that conversation is Daniel Roebuck. Getting Grace um, is available everywhere. You know, we always try to, to direct people to the Walmarts of the world because that's, that's the place that can make or break you. So Getting Grace came to be, though, the reason I'm sitting here talking to you today it's because uh, this guy named Jeff Lewis wrote this great story, a great script he wrote called Bending Spoons. And it was about um, a young girl dying of cancer who goes into a funeral home to find out what's going to happen after she dies. But she ends up teaching the funeral director how to celebrate life. Uh, and that was his story. And I wanted to overlay uh, a, a, a I wanted to overlay a celebration of God's grace onto it. So they, he very graciously let me rewrite it with him. And we made it, um, we made it a real allegory for the fact that God's grace is here and available to every one of us every day of our lives. But sometimes, you know, you know, and I know people who don't remember that and don't acknowledge it or don't want it, even though it's a gift given constantly. 
Well, you play, in addition to being the director of the film, you actually play the funeral director here. Your name in the movie is Bill. So tell me about Bill. Well, Bill is stuck, man. He's one of those guys who just, he lost, he, there's an event in his past that we explore in the film, and, and he's just off track. He just does not see. It's uh, what Jeff created initially was this wonderful um, counterpoint of a child dying who's fully alive and an adult fully alive in the death business who's dead inside. So we've got essentially a buddy comedy where the, the child has to remind the guy that there's more to life than you know, where he shut down 30 years ago. Um, so, uh, it was a, it was a, a pleasure to play the character and, um, I, I, hard to say, you know, like I, I, so God's given me these gifts. I acknowledge that they're gifts from God. So if I talk about them, uh, and I sound self aggrandizing, I really hope <laughs> that I'm acknowledging what's been given me, but you know, I'm a, although I'm a, a natural comedian, I generally on TV and whatnot, I'm often cast in, uh, not in comedy roles, but in dramatic roles. So in creating this character, recreating it for myself, I made him funny, because that's the one thing that I don't get to do enough of. And uh, he is funny. And the movie is, when you say to someone, I've made a movie about a girl dying of cancer, but it's a comedy, they think you're nuts. (laughs) What's up with that? (laughs) Well, because it is a comedy, because you know what? In every life lived, you laugh and you cry the whole time you're living. If you're doing it right, you're feeling. So sometimes that feeling is joy and laughter, and sometimes that feeling is fear or sadness. But to be fully alive is to fully feel. So uh, we made the movie a comedy. I really felt it had to be a comedy because I didn't think you'd get the real celebration of life without the laughter. That's, that's my feeling. As a filmmaker... I want to make movies that make a difference. So I have to use these gifts in a positive way. And one of the reasons I want people to see Getting Grace is because I want to keep making these stories. And for an independent filmmaker, you know, I had to borrow money. Talk about having faith. <laughs> I had to get strangers to give me enough money to make a movie. So I want to give them their money back and, and, and earn the faith that they put in me so that I can keep telling these stories of faith. Daniel Roebuck here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website gettinggracethemovie.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Mark Meckler, president of Citizens for Self-Governance. He provided analysis and commentary about the midterm elections and some of the trends he observed as a grassroots activist. He also discussed a religious freedom issue at an Illinois college in which a Christian group had encountered opposition because of its members' stand on traditional marriage. From that conversation, this is Mark Meckler. Yeah, you know, InterVarsity is a club there on campus at Knox College, and this situation was actually brought to my attention by a friend of mine whose daughter is a senior there and is a member of this club, and is just absolutely stunned by the, the turn of events. There is a junior there by the name of Ashley Curley, and she was offended by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's document, which they call Theology on Human Sexuality. Obviously, the, the Theology on Human Sexuality that most believers follow 
is that Christians should be in and should love same-sex attracted people. That scripture is clear that God's intention for sexual expression is between a husband and wife in marriage. She was offended by that, which I think she has every right to be offended by that. If she doesn't like that, maybe she is free to do that in this country. But she apparently believes that this organization, that InterVarsity, should not be allowed on Knox College, should not be allowed to express its own belief, its own theological beliefs, and that they need to be kicked off of campus. She says she believes there should be a Christian organization, just one that believes the way she believes, <laughs> not the way Christians believe. Yeah. And I bet that there there has to be, out of these hundred organizations or so that you mentioned, there's got to be one that seems like their their beliefs might line up. Well, there's a there is an LGBTQ plus organization on campus called Common Ground, and of course they've kind of taken up the cause. What's the latest as far as InterVarsity and how they're responding? You know, the latest is InterVarsity is absolutely standing their ground, which is something I appreciate. And, and for your listeners, I hope they understand how difficult this is for kids in college. There's so much pressure on young people to accept the LGB agenda, right, and to buy in and just to accept it and to go along with it. And folks who don't are in the minority. And so to express that for young people, that this is their theology, this is what they believe, and they're going to stand by it, it's a very difficult situation. It becomes a personal situation. They're, friend, they're alienated from their friends and from their co students, from professors, from administration. But right now, InterVarsity is standing their ground, and I hope they continue to do so. Mark Meckler is the president of Citizens for Self-Governance, joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio. We were talking about the situation involving Knox College. I also mentioned earlier this so-called Equality Act that is at least the the statement has been made that will be introduced and considered by the U.S. House of Representatives. Basically, this is an act that does not allow for differing opinions with respect to LGBTQ matters. It it basically legislates a monolithic point of view and basically says people do not have the the ability to disagree based on their deeply held religious beliefs. So instead of admitting that people can disagree on this issue, but they can do that agreeably, you know, here you have a group of people in the U.S. House of Representatives that basically want to squash any sort of disagreement. We're seeing that way too much in America today, I think. What about you? Well, I completely agree with you. I think one of the the things that we should most be concerned about in America today is the toleration of intolerance. In other words, yeah. we are supposed to, by constitutional mandate, be tolerant of each other's differing points of view. The very idea of freedom of speech was, was put into our Constitution to enshrine the idea that offensive speech should be protected. It's easy to, to protect speech that doesn't offend anybody. The question is, what happens when somebody is offending you? And the answer is, under the First Amendment, and under our ideas of religious freedom, that people are supposed to be able to be free to believe and to say whatever they believe. And the reality is that idea is now under attack in the United States of America. The Equality Act, as now proposed in, in the House of Representatives and, and the Senate, was intended to amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that would absolutely infringe upon religious liberty and the thoughts uh, or the rights of conscience of Christian believers and, frankly, the believers of the vast majority of organized religions in the world. Mark Meckler here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to selfgovern.com. 
You can also learn more about the Convention of States project, which is being overseen by the Citizens for Self-Governance organization by going to conventionofstates.com. Well, this has been the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page and get connected to video content. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Find out more by going to faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.